Welcome to Twill Week in Health Law, the increasingly hysterical podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. Recording this episode on June 28th, 2017, I am Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who actually believes this episode is a repeat, and who is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. A quick reminder, uh, it only takes a moment to go to iTunes and rate the show, or if you're uh, feeling particularly generous, go to twill.com. Click on our patron page link and uh, for the price of a bad latte, do something you'll be proud of later. So this week on Twill, we greet Claudia Pagliari, Senior Lecturer in Primary Care and Informatics and Director of the Global eHealth Program at Edinburgh University in the UK. A psychologist by training, she's a member of the UK College of Experts in Health Informatics, the British Computer Society, the UK Council for Health Informatics Professionals, and has held advisory roles with the American Health Information Management Association and the European Commission. This is a huge welcome to the pod, Claudia, and our sincere thanks for navigating the ugly time zones it took for you to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to join you. So for our first question today, I just wanted for us to focus on the issue of healthcare in lesser developed countries. And I'm wondering if you could start, Claudia, with a description of your article, uh, a scoping review on digital technology for health sector governance in low and middle income countries, because I think it's such an interesting perspective and such an important topic that, you know, we we in the more developed countries uh, just usually are not that aware of. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. This was a piece of work. Uh, It was commissioned by USAID through Management Sciences for Health, and I worked with Isaac Coleman and and Tara Cookson from uh, Medic Mobile in the University of Cambridge. Um, Now, the the problem here is that that in many low-income countries, not only are they resource-starved, so we think we've got things badly when we we read the newspaper here and we see all the cutbacks on the waiting lists, but things are really, really quite uh, seriously um, lacking in in many of these countries. Uh, Sometimes you're you're talking uh, 12,000 people to one doctor. But more around that is this question of institutional governance. Um, Institutions are very often struggling with problems like mismanagement, lack of information, lack of resources and human resources as well as financial ones, but also issues like endemic corruption, uh, which I think we, you know, it's been known about for a long time and there are many countries making significant efforts to to change this. Um, But nonetheless, they happen at multiple levels of the system from the corporate uh, and and very senior levels right down to the everyday soft uh, corruption uh, that, that occurs. So one of the the reasons for doing this review was was to think, well, we understand how digital technologies are influencing the processes of healthcare and improving efficiencies and and these sorts of things in high-income countries and also low-income countries. There's been some marvelous innovations in uh, mobile health uh, in particular and some uh, basic uh, record-keeping systems, which have helped to improve efficiency and and, uh, improve the data 
data available for public health monitoring, um, as well as financing and so forth. But these systems aren't typically dealing with some of those other hidden issues. Yes, and I think these hidden issues are just such interesting things to grapple with in terms of how can you sort of both centralize and decentralize control. And I'm wondering, you know, in terms of that dichotomy, do you think that the digital technology is leading to more centralization and standardization, or is it enabling sort of newer experimentation in uh, many of these regions? Both to some extent. And there certainly have been lots of effort to introduce common reporting standards for vital statistics, uh, although that's still a problem. Um, Basic uh, data on maternal health care and population health data. But it's still fairly, fairly rudimentary. Um, Often we're seeing in low resource areas quite a lot of innovation happening um, that that emerges sometimes from the grassroots. Either it's been developed by an enterprising clinician or manager or technology company. There's some wonderful, interesting uh, startups in some of these countries, but often they're coming from the grassroots themselves. And one of the things we we looked at in this in this review was how citizens themselves are beginning to deploy reporting tools that are used in things like crowdsourcing to do things like naming and shaming corrupt doctors when they've been asked for a backhander, when they've been, um, you know, in order to jump a queue, for example, in a a medical facility, they're now perhaps able to name and shame them a little bit more easily. Um, There's a a site which is is used quite quite openly for lots of things in many low-income countries called I Paid a Bribe. And this has been deployed in the case of, of healthcare too. But at the same time, we've seen some quite uh, clever innovations that have, have become commercialized actually and have gone elsewhere. So we, we've seen this reverse uh, innovation, if you like, from those countries. And uh, one example uh, would be um, uh, certain systems for um, assessing the provenance of, of drugs that are available over the counter. Uh, the problem of fake counterfeit drugs is, is huge in low-income countries and people are quite tempted to, to buy products which are not quite right or, or actively fake um, because they, they, they perhaps don't understand what to look for um, or they haven't got them as much money or simply because there's quite a lot of a, a black economy going on behind the scenes that people simply are, aren't aware of. Um, but as uh, attention was focused more and more on to this, uh, companies began to develop things like barcodes, special um, types of barcodes that you could scan, you could get information about where the product has come from. And, and this has now gone into routine use. So a couple of companies developing this. One, one was uh, actually originated in Nigeria. And they're being used quite widely now for, for drug monitoring um, and uh, provenance assessment. So that would be an example of an innovation that's come forward that's actually turned into a, a, something that's making, making money as well as protecting lives potentially. Whereas the crowdsourcing one is something that was really driven by a demand amongst the populace. 
uh, that they took something which they were using for other purposes, like reporting potholes or um, uh, talking about paying bribes to corrupt traffic wardens and deploying it in healthcare context. So that, that type of innovation is, is going on all the time. But at the same time, there's things that are happening within the context of healthcare, which, which have been designed largely for efficiency purposes or that kind of governance, but have had these unintended positive consequences on um, some of these um, illicit or unethical practices. An example might be uh, the use of digital cash registers to uh, take patient payments um, in, a, in a hospital setting, for example. So previously, you might have had to write it out by hand and you could sort of carefully not write certain things and take the money yourself. Uh, whereas if it has to be done through a digital uh, device and people are given a printed statement and they can't actually, you know, there's, there's auditing involved, those sorts of um, under-the-counter payments stop. Um, similarly, and I've also got a PhD student who's been working on, on a, a project on electronic health records in Malawi and some of the ways in which they're configured also mean that the transparency and accountability of behavior within health systems, which are very complex and, and sociodynamic, not just about healthcare, but that behavior becomes more, more transparent and as a consequence of that, there's a greater deal of accountability and we are then seeing reductions in these sorts of core practices uh, occurring. So those, those are just a few examples. Examples. Are, there, are some of the difficulties that uh, both we see and low and middle income countries see based on this sort of problem as to whether healthcare has to adapt to newer data-based information technologies, or is the question that the technology has to adapt to the healthcare systems? That's a very good question, Nick. Um, both of those things. We I mean, we know from from the research that's gone on, and much of it actually is 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 not not research. It's uh, experiential learning, some of which has been documented. But there is research also. It has made it very clear that I mean, you can't simply take a technology that's been developed in a high income country and parachute it into a low income country and expect it to work just the same. Because in truth, healthcare interventions that involve technologies are very seldom just about the technology. They're introduced as part of a, a socio-technical change. So people have to implement those technologies. They get customized in local contexts. There might be things that people want or don't want. Um, these all affect what happens and the balance in any form of e-health often, and this is often neglected in the literature, although there's, there's more awareness of it now, is that sometimes the balance is much more on the social change or changes in work practices that happen, not so much the technology, whereas for other types of introductions of e-health, it's the technological thing that makes most of the difference. But until you understand that, until you take account of context, your ability to actually introduce things successfully can fail. Examples occur when you have perhaps language used in, in the fields in an electronic health record. Perhaps that language isn't familiar, or perhaps there's a, a different coding scheme or something that's used in another country. Sometimes that's not taken into account. We've even seen that in, uh, in recent studies on uh, strategic information systems when American system has been brought to Scotland and people didn't really get it because it was, it was configured for a private Americanized healthcare system, not for a public uh, 
UK-based one. And, and this happens to a much greater degree um, overseas. So, so things need to, to adapt. And user-centered design, proper consultations, all of these things are, are important for, um, for making that happen. There's a wonderful book by Vijay Govindan Dejaran and Chris Trimble. It's called Reverse Innovation, which tells the story of GE developing an ECG machine for India. And instead of having a complex manual, it had a red button and a green button. Instead of a laser printer, it had one of those little printers attached that like they have in, um, you know, when you return your rental car and they, they, they give you that little receipt. And it was battery powered and could go in a backpack carried by a man on a bicycle. And the, a lot of the, the book is about would a rich man ever want to buy a poor man's product? Sort of reverse colonialism almost. Fascinating piece of work. Uh, yes, uh, that, that is fascinating. And, uh, and I'm familiar with that. And actually, uh, we're seeing more interest in it over you know, around about 18 months ago. I think it was the Health Foundation in the United Kingdom, uh, which has tasked with trying to find innovative solutions for the, the problems of, you know, hard to resource, uh, resource finite uh, governments trying to support healthcare systems, has done these outreach visits to places like India to look for these cheap innovations. Um, looking at not not just not just reverse innovations, I should say, because there are many, but also frugal innovations. We're seeing, um, you know, we spend, and particularly you're in the United States, spending huge amounts of money on things that sometimes don't actually cost that much to do, or or wouldn't potentially cost that much to do if you if you followed a model that was being used elsewhere. So it's not just the technologies, but also in the models of healthcare. Um, and when we're thinking about innovation and reverse innovation and Frugal innovation. We're thinking of those the, the whole the whole thing, the model of care, as well as the technological means by which to deliver it. But absolutely, there there's been some great examples, and we'll see more and more of that as time goes on. And and certainly with the you know the the global economy supported by the internet and digital information exchange. Uh, things like 3D printing, all sorts of things. We're, I think we're going to see a lot more innovation from places like India and, and, and Africa moving forward into our own settings. Um, and uh, and that can only, only be a good thing. I was wondering, in terms of thinking about models from lesser developed countries, uh, in terms of the, the drug advertising landscape, we in the US, uh, under the uh, Trump administration with the FDA, there's a lot of interest now in, for example, uh, cutting back on the reading of side effects uh, at, during drug ads. Um, uh, our U.S. listeners will know that if you have an ad for a drug on television, perhaps half, sometimes even more than half, it seems, of the ad could be uh, dedicated to a long list of the side effects from the drug. And one of the things I'm wondering here is, you know, are there lessons from Zimbabwe, because you've recently written in BMJ Global Health about the drug advertising rules uh, in Zimbabwe, that could either Either, um, push in the direction of uh, new, leaner, uh, un- less regulated uh, systems, or that are uh, cautionary tales uh, for those in the uh, health policy apparatus in the U.S. and Europe that might want to uh, deregulate in that area. Yes, that's a that's a tricky one. And uh, indeed, there was a, an article I was reading this morning in the Journal of the American Medical Association, all about uh, essentially stealth marketing of drugs uh, through television situation drugs. And uh, other sorts of uh, 
drop in advertising that goes on. We know that there's a lot of marketing that's occurring, which is really fairly unethical and, and in some cases quite dangerous and certainly quite costly uh, if uh, drug advertising is being mediated through the consumer, whether or not it's it's hidden under the disguise of so-called awareness raising, which is what we've been seeing with rare diseases. But in terms of, of uh, this change that you're, uh, you're saying is being proposed in the United States, I'd be very concerned about that. Um, although the advertisements, when I've been there, you know, fairly annoying when somebody speaks at a million miles an hour at the end about all the things that could go wrong, uh, you know, it might, might dent the advert and, and people's viewing pleasure. But it's nonetheless vitally important. And the question is, of course, whether it's listened to. I'm not aware of research to to, um, verify the extent to which people acknowledge and take action based on on those little um, qualifiers at the end of these uh, advertisements. Uh, but I expect there'll be quite a lot of variability in terms of how, how much people take in and, and most importantly, how much it influences them uh, relative, relative to the imagery and the big messages that are being given. Now, uh, so I'm, I'm very much in favour of uh, regulating uh, direct-to-consumer drug advertising for that reason. However, we've seen something rather different in Zimbabwe, which is, is presented a paradox and it also uh, forced us to ask new questions uh, about this. And um, this is some work I've been doing uh, with uh, one of my PhD students who is a pharmacist from Zimbabwe um, and, and a colleague from the business school here. And we've been, we've been trying to understand how medicines are, uh, are delivered. What, what is the chain of, uh, of delivery from um, a prescriber to the hands of the consumer, uh, particularly things thinking about the role of, of uh, businesses, pharmacies, commercial pharmacies, um, street corner pharmacies in this. Now, one of the things that's been exposed in this is it, we have a situation which in this a country, unlike the United States, where insurance uh, companies are you know, awash with money and uh, where we are obviously less awash with money in, in the UK, but nonetheless plenty of access, despite, as I said, how much we complain about it. In Zimbabwe, the situation is completely different. Not only is it a low-income country, it's also been starved of, of resources recently due to all sorts of uh, difficulties, some to do with corruption and mismanagement, but many um, simply to do with bad politics and policies, which have, have led to the banks shutting down, money being held back, and as a consequence, public services not uh, being supported. And also as part of that, the ability to buy drugs has been much reduced. Um, that's been reduced not only for those financial reasons, but also because the government has, um, uh, in a sort of politically correct operation, has decided it doesn't want to buy any drugs from abroad. There will be certain uh, friendly countries from which they are willing to buy drugs or they would prefer to have homegrown drugs. The consequence of this is a starvation in the number of medicines available. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, patients, when they're prescribed something, can't always be sure that they're going to be able to get the thing that they've been prescribed. So they, for, uh, this, uh, my, my student, uh, Desire, has been traveling around asking some of these questions and patients are having to sort of shop around, wander around, trying to find sometimes the thing that they need. Now, this is where drug advertising is relevant. Those pharmacists that have this medicine, which could be very useful for those patients, 
are not allowed to advertise this fact or they're not allowed to make this fact known publicly because currently it conflicts with anti-drug advertising laws. So those regulations which were are absolutely 100% appropriate in our settings over there are having this paradoxical effect of reducing access to useful information about medicines for consumers that need them. And one of the side effects of this is people either doing without their medicines or being palmed off with something else that might not quite be what they need or may indeed not be useful. Or for that matter, ending up going to the street markets and buying things on the black market. So innovation, and, and there are innovations uh, that are being deployed to try and uh, try and address this. For example, uh, uh, pharmacists themselves crowdsourcing information using WhatsApp uh, to to sort of share who's got what where um, and therefore be able to convey that information to their customers. But it's still quite rudimentary. And anyway, this project is going to be about trying to create much more innovative and open ways of doing this legally in a way that supports the patient. But we that is exactly an example of the sort of thing that, that Nick was mentioning earlier about how things, you know, that are designed for one context don't always work in another and drug advertising rules which are absolutely uh, right uh, those those restrictions for us sadly it sounds like they're being watered down in the United States at the moment um, but they're absolutely right for us but over there they were having this unintended side effect in terms of information provision and risk to patients let's uh, move the conversation if we may Claudia a little bit closer to uh, your home given that that Scotland is is still part of the UK uh, as we speak, I tried to sort of come up with a quick list of some of the things that we sort of are talking about on the edge of uh, healthcare and data and e-health in this country. Here were a couple of things that that we've been talking about and we've often talked about on this show: the protection of health data outside of the traditional health domain. Um, what's going to happen as patients do more self-curation of health data using their smart devices, the safety and quality of health apps and services. Uh, we've had issues with blood pressure tests, online eye tests, and I've been doing some work recently on depression detection apps for a, a paper I'm delivering. Um, what are AI and machine learning bringing to the table? And what is that going to mean for the relationships between traditional providers and technology companies? Uh, I'm thinking of a particular London hospital and a particular American company at this point. Frank mentioned interoperability and sharing of data. Have we sort of cracked the quality licensure issues associated with remote care? Is data surveillance or processing going to be seen as a, a replacement for traditional regulatory models applied to uh, clinical trials? And, uh, and also something I know you've written on, which is uh, how we handle products and services that traditionally we've thought of as part of the, the regulated professional stack sort of thing. But increasingly, uh, there's pressure or regulatory arbitrage to move them into the direct-to-consumer area. So I, I wondered if you could sort of complement that list by giving us a sense of what people are 
talking about uh, the sort of the the sharp end of of e-health in the UK or for that matter also in the EU. As you know, some of that's been complicated by the Brexit uh, discussions, uh, which are still uh, very opaque. And uh, uh, but I mean, chiefly, I think this is a huge area. Um, and, uh, you know, one could fill entire courses with with this sort of thing, which, uh, uh, which I do, in fact. Um, and so do my colleagues. As, as do we. <laughs> as do you, indeed. Um, so so uh, where to start? The dominant issue, obviously, has been in the last few years, uh, data protection in the EU. And certainly now the chickens are running around wanting to get their, their nests sorted out. For, do chickens have nests? Their nests sorted out for the general data protection regulation, which is coming in from Europe, uh, which has all sorts of implications for, for all sorts of business, as you know. Um, but healthcare is one uh, area in which that's clear. So that's that's been a dominant issue. But connected to that are all sorts of other questions uh, around things like, as you say, medical apps. Uh, there's been EU uh, green papers on uh, uh, the protection of data that's being exchanged through medical apps. Uh, also, there are questions about the safety of these devices, uh, chiefly as with the, the United States and uh, FDA and so forth, those questions of, well, what, what should be more protected and what is just fun? You know, well, what are the things that are harmless, fun, and, uh, and probably don't require heavy um, regulation? And what are the things which are going to potentially kill you and really need it? Um, and the, the tide goes in and out on this all the time, and people change. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 level of of risk aversion uh, appears to change uh, from day to day. Not only. Um, as technologies advance, which brings all sorts of questions with it, for example, about data integration and linkage. So uh, you're not you're no longer just answer, asking those questions about this one piece of kit. You might have to ask it about all the things that it connects to as well, because it's part of an ecosystem. Um, but there, there are many questions around safety, questions around data sharing, which are, uh, are really not well worked out. And the other reason for this is because it's it's awfully difficult to manage. Actually, when there have been initiatives uh, to uh, try and say, well, we're going to create databases of all these medical apps and we're going to quality assess them, we're going to try and create some sort of assurance around their ethical compliance, that job becomes enormous when you consider the market here. So this is why we've defaulted to this self-regulatory model in many ways. But it's it's not ideal. And, and similarly, we have you know a number of agencies with remits for certain things, um, but they're not wholly connected up. Can you explain what happened to the first NHS library and its attempts at curation? And then what do we know about the latest iteration of that that I think is just coming online? Yes, um, I, I don't have the last word on the latest iteration, uh, but the it was quite it was fairly unclear what happened um, when it, it came to a demise before. To a large extent, it comes down to manpower. Um, you know, when one is staffing these things with volunteers or people working uh, on top of their jobs, it, it becomes unfeasible to to keep up that level of vigilance that you require. It needs an actual, um, you know, a lot of human resource. 
One possibility, and I don't know if this is in the new plans, but uh, certainly something I've been looking at in in terms of of governance is whether we can uh, deploy some of those bots to uh, to check through the compliance of of some of the um, the apps, in particular by looking at their terms and conditions and privacy statements and so forth. Is there some way to automate that? If there was, at least to do some sort of first line checking, we might actually be able to to uh, red flag things that needed further human intervention. But right now, it's a bit like shoveling snow in a in a hurricane. It is complicated, yes. And I'm reminded of some of the discussions of the mental health apps uh, that were on the NHS website, and I I do recall some study saying that several of them had no real proven safety or effectiveness, or at least effectiveness with respect to some of these apps, and uh, and it's become this huge issue in the United States as well. Sort of a lot of folks advocating for access to the apps uh, and others are very worried about them. I was wondering with respect to your article um, on transparency of genetic testing services for health, wellness, and lifestyle, if we could just discuss that a bit, because you mentioned earlier this divide between things that could potentially cause someone to do something that they really ought not do or that could have a severe impact on, direct impact on their health versus things that you could just sort of do for fun. And I think we're definitely seeing that in the U.S. with some of these genetic testing services in the sense of even though it seems as though the real appeal is to try to divine some clearer sense of one's risk for certain illnesses, there are advertising pushes based on, hey, wouldn't it be fun to know uh, what part of uh, this continent you're from or questions like that. And um, (laughs) I'm wondering how that uh, needle is being threaded both by the companies and by regulators to the extent that they're offering any sort of advice on that. This is is a difficult difficult one. Uh, it's not that there's no interest, but uh, I think that it, we're looking at quite a complex, as I said before, regulatory landscape uh, where different agencies are responsible for different things. And as a consequence, a lot of this has been left to um, industry self-regulation. Um, we in terms of direct consumer genetic testing, I have some very serious concerns about this um, for, for many of the reasons you've, you've, you've mentioned. Uh, the advertising is currently almost entirely, in, in, the, in certainly the, the, the ones that we looked at, which is about health, wellness, and lifestyle. So not explicitly uh, medical. You have to go to your doctor for that still. And uh, we didn't uh, look at the ancestry ones, although I have some concerns about those. But these are about health, wellness, and lifestyle. And they would include um, uh, various um, things to do with your uh, you know, propensity to certain kinds of uh, illnesses, um, but also your uh, perhaps uh, the, the, the wellness of your gut microbiome, and some of these things. Now, it includes also companies like 23andMe. Um, these are being advertised to the consumer very much, as you say, as a sort of fun novelty in many ways, certainly the, the ancestry ones and, and many of these things around perhaps understanding how your child will turn out. Will they be a, a brain scientist or will they be a builder? What will happen to them? Some of these tools are out there being marketed in, in some fairly unique ways, um, but most of them uh, are not backed up by the the information uh, that they need. That Often they're based on laboratories which are not... Uh, following the current standards. 
uh, or the required standards. They may be uh, not uh, sold uh, with adequate counselling on top or even a demystification phase. You may have to be able to buy that yourself as an extra service, but very often it's not there. But most worryingly of all is the... The, the, the translation of this fun into potentially somebody else's business model. We're seeing a lot of the companies taking uh, possession of people's data after they have signed up to one of these services. And it's not always very clear what they're doing with this data. To some, some of them are even uh, saying we have ownership uh, by virtue of the fact that you signed up to our service and you've given us your data and your genetic material. Pretty much we own it now. Others have uh, various different types of consent that they operate. Well, we'll use it uh, for aggregated data. We won't require any more consent. Whereas for individualized data, we will ask for your written consent. Uh, but it's very, very variable. And it's not entirely clear what's happening with this information. Uh, we are not in this country as familiar with the likes of data brokers, um, as, as uh, I know has been a, a bigger issue uh, in the United States. But they are operating and uh, the companies are, are very often companies which are converging with other companies. So uh, considering 23andMe and Ancestry.com, for example, um, very close relationships that could have big implications if those data are linked and, and used in ways which are, are not appropriate. So, but some of those smaller companies are less transparent. Those, those companies are actually doing quite a good job of their transparency to the extent that they, you know, they've got they've got very good lawyers. They're very exposed, so they're making more of an effort. And they've been criticized quite a lot. So they're they are making more of an effort. But quite a lot of people are under the radar, small companies. Uh, we were seeing, certainly in our analysis, in which we 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 looked at the actually the pre-purchase information available to consumers before they make a decision to buy the product. What is online? This is essentially e-health now. This is something that reaches you through digital media. You make your decisions on digital media. You get your data digitally very often and the data itself is stored digitally. So it's legitimately e-health. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, quite worrying. Um, potentially, companies which are perhaps new startups um, are maybe not as familiar with some of those requirements. Uh, we have a Human Genetics Co Commission developed a set of ethical principles back in 2010. But then, when that uh, committee came to its um, came to its conclusion, it produced its last report. It was shut down, and there hasn't been any update of that since, although other bodies have come along and developed ethical guidelines. So we basically assessed the companies that we came across, we assessed their pre-purchase information against the expectations for this type of information in the Human Genetics Committee's ethical guidelines and, and found quite a lot of gaps. So since the show, and that is a wonderful discussion of that issue, and I really uh, commend the piece to listeners. I think it's a very interesting look at both where we are and where we're going. Since we're running out of time, though, I just wanted to be sure to ask one question about your uh, two recent papers on health information exchange, um, one of which is titled A Health Information Exchange as a Complex and Adaptive, adaptive Construct. And um, that complex and adaptive point reminds me of two things. One is my favorite British politics podcast, uh, Talking Politics with David Runciman, uh, recently con concluded with John Naughton saying, um, given all the turbulence in politics, perhaps we can only talk about surface 
level changes when what's really key is what's going on underneath. And it's very hard to understand that complex system. And the second being that um, with respect to health information exchange, I think one of the big difficulties is it's hard for people to grasp how it could be qualified, modulated, moderated, controlled outside of the vision of one giant database that some large entity uh, controls. And I'm wondering, you know, in terms of that potential vision of a future of health information exchange of one giant database, is that where we're headed? Or are is there hope that there are other visions of health information exchange that could, say, be more robust to attacks, it could be more secure, and could have less of the uh, creepy factor? <laughs> well, uh, uh, this is this is pretty tricky. Uh, well, there's two things you're talking about, is the, the health information exchange and the mechanisms for that. And uh, we don't have here what you guys call health information exchanges, which is a thing. Uh, here we still think of it as a process, and and it still is, which is one of the one of the reasons for, for for doing this review on the taxonomies around this and the concepts around it, and uh, and looking at its history and so forth. But in terms of the data itself, we have moved from the position of uh, having very poorly integrated information, which um, presented problems in terms of uh, inability to integrate for the patient's benefit, for example, in order to understand if they have a complex condition, to be able to bring information together um, to, to create a, you know, a holistic management plan for the patient, for example, it was quite difficult before until we developed uh, systems that uh, allow data to be brought together through, um, in the case of, of the United Kingdom, a universal patient identification number, which means that the data can sit where it's created, but at the point at which it's required, it can be brought together and, and used. Uh, but the, the parent data set sits where it is. And that, that was quite a, quite a sensible model, which was enabled through these, um, these mechanisms, these digital mechanisms for, for linkage, uh, which obviously depend on the information being structured and managed in a way that allows it to be brought together as and when it's needed. And the same is true for research uses of information, which again, things sitting out there in silos, not being able to be brought together effectively, or when they when they were used for research, it was extremely labor intensive. So um, systems for, for having a linkage uh, mechanism for bringing those together in this bigger, temporarily bigger data um, it were very effective. Now, at the same time, there were movements towards centralizing data as a an efficiency measure to a large extent. We're going to have this great huge database of information and this will be able to be mined for research and used for public health surveillance and uh, uh, creating uh, for creating innovations, all of these good things. But of course, it comes with enormous risks. So as you'll have seen with cases such as the care.data um, uh, scandal, really, in the United Kingdom, um, this didn't go down terribly well with the public, uh, particularly when the uh, the uh, some of the inappropriate sharing of that information was brought to light, particularly with companies. Um, the public is, in general, very unhappy with concepts of giant databases sucking up all the information about them that they have. Uh, and uh, certainly a lot of the public engagement work um, uh, people, including myself, did with members of the public, spending time with them, workshops, uh, doing surveys, uh, 
you know, speaking to them in interviews, indicates that people are not they're not unhappy with the idea of data sharing for, for public benefit or indeed for their own health care, but they're not very happy with this sort of super database idea. Now, as a consequence, certainly in the United Kingdom, there's been a, a pulling back and this movement towards securing data where it is and having um, uh, data that's federated and integrated at, as you require it. I'm not saying there are no big databases, there are, and there are certainly big data centers. Um, but that's all very well. We say, okay, we'll move into this world where it's a distributed database and ideally in an optimum world, Actually, the, the, the consumer themselves through their personal data platform will become, they'll become the data integrator and you know, life will be so much easier. But actually, we're seeing something rather different, different happening, sort of unintended effect happening in the world out there to the extent that whilst our data may be distributed, while we may be putting more and more pressure on our public health services or, or our data guardians, data custodians to protect that information, there is this wider ecosystem around Around, which is managing to reintegrate that data. So all the AI that you were speaking about before, uh, companies and data brokers that ha- happen to sort of know a bit about this and a bit about that and happen to be able to uh, use your identity, for example, to link together information that, that as is officially uh, distributed. This, this is going to happen to a greater and greater degree, I think. And we have slightly less of a problem here in the sense that we have a, we have a public health system, nearly all healthcare is provided by the state and there's a there is a sense of responsibility or duty as a citizen to to be part of this wider thing although not everybody agrees um, which is rather different from situations in other countries where your different providers servicing various parts of your of your body or your mind may not actually be part of the same organization at all um, and that's uh, you know actually there may be a vested interest in an insurance company for for example, in linking that information together. But uh, things are slightly different uh, in the United Kingdom. But nonetheless, that's that's how I see this playing out. We had a problem with siloed data. We tried to create mechanisms for bringing it together. Then we tried to move towards a big databases approach. This went down like a lead balloon with the public. And then I'm not saying we, I, I, mean, I work more with the, with the public, but we as institutions. Um, but now having rolled back from that, I think the next thing we have to watch out for is those sharks circling around the tank, around the around the, the protected cage, as it were, that we may not know about yet. There may be little bots floating around, connecting us, connecting our data or creating inferences about us. And and that's where some of these issues with de- depression detection and so forth are, are of interest. And, and likewise, the very large company and the very large hospital that you mentioned in London, uh, which has caused quite a lot of controversy. So as we try and get the picture of a bot shark out of our minds. Let us uh, bring the show to an end. That was The Week in Health Law. A really big thank you to Professor Pagliari for joining us. On Twitter, you will find her at E-E-H-R-N. That's uppercase E, lowercase E, uppercase H, uppercase R, uppercase N. That was great fun talking with you, Claudia. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. And I um, I know we could uh, engage in this sort of conversation for a long time. And I hope we have the chance to do so, uh, particularly when you're, you're next in the UK. Excellent. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank is at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.